before we start the sermon, I have two things to share with you. The first one is, if you appreciated the video that we showed to start Holy Week, the Palm Sunday video, there is a book complement to it, The Final Days of Jesus, by Costin Berger and Justin Taylor, the people you saw in the video. And it's a, it's a pretty straightforward read. You can probably find it online and follow it if you wanted to. It's a good Bible study post-Easter, The Final Days of Jesus. Uh, one of our members got this for me a few years ago, and I really appreciate the read. It's a good book. Uh, the videos go along with the content of this book. As Pastor Kurt said, they're going to be posted on our Facebook page each day this week to follow the events of Holy Week, Sunday or Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all the way to Silent Saturday. And then, of course, we'll be back together again on Sunday as well as Friday for that matter. But follow the videos, and I think that will help you. The other thing I wanted to say, uh, kind of by way of preliminaries here, is at the conclusion of our sermon time today, we'll share the Lord's Supper, and I won't, we'll offer it without comment at that point, but we just want to let you know from a faithfulness perspective that we want you to be believers from a gospel-preaching church before you partake in this. So if you're not a follower of Christ and you're, you're not walking with Him, dealing with known sin before the Lord, acting consistent with your church covenant, then you shouldn't partake of the Lord's Supper. Just pass on the communion cup. Some will pass. It's not harmful. However, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine 29 warns against taking the cup in an unworthy manner, not meaning that we have to be perfect to take it. That's not what that means. It means that you should not be defiant and take it. So you, you have to, in some ways, self-assess. If you haven't already been talked to about this, you have to assess if you are actually a Christian who's following Christ. One way to know that is if you've followed him in baptism and if you're acting consistent with your church covenant. So I hope that that encourages you because that's going to be the end of the sermon time today as our deacons and pastors serve you the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse one through, verses 1 through 11 is what we're going to need to, to read together here uh, this morning and to try to understand from God's Word how it is that we can be faithful to Him and walk with Him. Uh, just before I read it, I want to offer kind of an introduction to it. A.W. Tozer is a, a fam famous 20th century theologian in the church. A lot of people appreciate his work. And he, kind of I'm going to offer a loose quote of his to try to, to give a little bit of a, of a frame to this message today. Uh, when you deliberate and come to a well-thought-out conclusion on a matter, like a right decision, then you should cling to it. You should fight double-mindedness at every turn because... He said something like this, a rightly made firm decision that you've made will alleviate a multitude of anxieties in a way that therapeutic counsel only will never alleviate anxieties. When you make a firm decision, when you come to a rightly made, rightly made, firm decision as a Christian deliberating on spiritual things, when you come to that decision and you're convictional about a matter, cling to it, hang to it, and it will alleviate a multitude of of anxieties. Conviction matters in matters that are absolute. Even the best of men are merely men at best. So this process of deliberating and making a right decision is not about us being the best of men, but rather about the best man, the God-man, and you know him. His name is Jesus Christ. And he defied the prince of darkness of the air to condescend heaven and come down and rescue we the people. This one man and so we share this message because our preaching does not fall on deaf ears or come from mute idols. It comes from the living God who, through men, carried them along 
in spite of themselves, to write Scripture. And the Scripture that we have today, we embrace. And so we want to get to the core of the message today because a rightly made decision covers over a multitude of anxiety. If you'll embrace the gospel with your actions and attitudes all the way to the end of your life, under firm conviction, firmly established, you'll experience grace upon grace, this text says. Grace upon grace. Not because you earned it, not because you deserved it, but because Christ gave it to you. He imparted it to you. So as we read this text, I want you to watch for the gospel's relevance, content, messengers, and theme. Listen to this text about the gospel. Verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Aren't you glad for preaching? Aren't you glad that you have believed? Oh my, the tense of that verb connotes ongoing action, ongoing belief. It's not just that you once believed. It's not just that you, you made a profession of faith in a church when you were seven and then it had no bearing on your life over the next 70 years. No, it means that you believed, but that you ongoingly believe. It's a testimony of how the gospel is not just for the A to B of your spiritual life, but it's for the A to Z of your entire life. Let's examine the gospel's relevance first of all in the first two verses. In verses 3 and 4, let's examine the gospel's content. In verses 5 through 8, let's examine the gospel's messengers. And in verses 9 through 11, let's examine the gospel's theme. This is all about the gospel. It's all about the gospel. Verses 1 and 2 again. I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. This is about the gospel's relevance. This word to remind you is to impress upon you. It's to keep you in the mind of. It's an ongoing reminder of what you told them. It's kind of like a tell them, tell them again, tell them what you told them. You ever heard that old phrase before? I know that's a phrase that's popular in my house. It's a that's how you teach somebody something. You tell them, and then you tell them again, and you tell them what you told them. That's when you want to emphasize something. You want to remind them of something important. And that's what this verse, uh, that's what this verse means. An ongoing telling them, a making known to them. It's like a mission statement that you, a business doesn't want you to forget. Uh, and sometimes 
businesses do varying degrees of well with this, but if they have a mission statement, the idea is it's supposed to concisely communicate that which that organization believes and adheres to. Now, one popular mission statement for a, for a Christian organization is to know God and to make Him known. It's a pretty good mission statement. And so that organization seeks to have that on the lips of everybody in the organization, to know God and make Him known, right? Mission statements have a lot of power, and um, they, they help organizations to consolidate their efforts around a central purpose. Well, churches, whether they follow a business model or not, we have kind of the original mission statement. It's all about the gospel. I mean, that's the point. It's the point from page to page in the Scripture. It's not just the point when the Greek word for gospel appears both as a noun and as a verb right next to each other in this passage. It's not just when it appears in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel message is central to Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, all the way through the major and minor prophets, all the way through the New Testament right to the very last page. The gospel is rooted in eternity past, and it is directed toward eternity future. You'll never find a story by which to ground your story within that is more potent and powerful and sustaining than the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all about the gospel. That's our mission. Do you understand? So it's eternally relevant because it is rooted. It's rooted in a way nothing else can be. For it's God's gospel. God is the gospel, as one theologian rightly said. And so we exist to make that gospel known. We exist as a people because God made us His. We are His. He is mine. We are His individually, and we are His as a body, both and, not either or. So the gospel's relevance is not in question. It's possible for tradition, like reason or experience, to convey a good thing. 1 Corinthians 11 says this in verse 2. Now I commend to you, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Well, that's a good statement about tradition. But Mark 7.13 tells us it's possible for traditions, like reason or experience, to convey a bad thing. Mark 7.13 says this, Thus making void the word of God, the word of God, by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. So there is a statement for tradition in its right-wielding. It's sort of an inculcating way of teaching the youth and the new converts the way uh, through word and deed. So, for example, the palm branches, that's a good tradition. Why? It teaches you Matthew 21 and the synoptic gospel renditions of Palm Sunday, right? This is good. And the teaching back to, to King Solomon, the inauguration of the Davidic kingdom in Jesus that was truer and greater with a new covenant, this is good. So from a young age, they're learning through it. That's a good tradition. I'm not going to give you an example of a bad tradition, but you can probably think of a few. A bad tradition is one that violates the clear teaching of the Word of God. So if we don't then cling to tradition to the neglect of it, right? Salvation is not for sale. Salvation is by faith. So we don't want to cling to anything that makes salvation appear as if it is for sale. That would be a false gospel. It would undermine the mission, and it would be a bad tradition. So if it came from the Lord, now by His Word, then tradition conveys a good thing. If it didn't, it conveys a bad thing. So we're reminding you of things that are grounded, that are rooted, that are relevant, not simply because they're tradition, but because they're good tradition. It's tradition based on the Word of God. I may be one of the few people left in the West that earns his bread not by being novel and new, but by reminding you of things that are ancient and fixed, 
I was thinking about this that this week as I was reading this word remind and thinking of its range of meaning. I mean, I am actually failing at my job if I preach to you something that's novel and new or new. It's my job to preach to you that old story that's fixed, certainly in a fresh way, but it never gets old because one, it's for the A to Z of your life and you're prone to forget and wonder like I am. And two, we have little ones coming along and new ones that don't know the gospel. So it's never irrelevant. And this passage is timely for our church family because it's Easter. So 1 Corinthians 15, 1 and 2 tells us that the gospel is relevant insofar as the tradition is that we are telling what we've learned and received from the apostles through now the word that we give to the new people and to ourselves again and again, we are being found faithful because we are standing on the faith, contending for the faith, once for all delivered to the saints, like Jude 3 says. Or like Philippians 4, 9 says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So God in his, in his peace is with us as we practice these things that we've learned and received and heard. So it's, it's not that the tradition is bad or good morally. It's that if the tradition is good, then tradition is good. If the tradition is bad, the tradition is bad. There are schools of thought out there that would say that experience or reasoning or tradition should trump what the Word of God clearly teaches. And we do not operate that way. We believe the Word of God stands above tradition. And tradition is weighed as good or bad based on how closely it connects with good interpretive principles as we come to understand the Word of God for our practice as a, as a congregation. So we, we tell them, we, we tell them again, and we tell them what we told them. The gospel message is relevant because it's rooted in eternity past and spans into eternity future. Number two, the gospel's content is essential to understand. It's essential. And really, this is a very simple, simple message, but yet it is as profound and deep and wide as it can be. So look at verses 3 and 4, please, afresh. It says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Christ died, dot, 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 verse 4. He was buried. He was raised. You see that? That's the gospel. Watch it again. It's right there. It's very, very, very... We actually require... Uh, pledging members, like in a membership interview for prospective members, we require them to explain the gospel to us because they are, as members, going to have to guard and proclaim the gospel. And we don't want to set them up for failure. So not only do they have a gospel testimony, but they need to be able to explain the gospel. And we need to be reminded from time to time of that which we, as members, are required to guard and proclaim. So there it is. What is the gospel? Three phrases. Christ died. He was buried. He was raised. That's pretty, that's pretty straightforward, isn't it? Can you memorize nine words? You just catch the hook. You can memorize three words. Died, buried, raised. Died, buried, raised. How about you say that with me? Died, buried, raised. Died, buried, raised. Died, buried, raised. What is the gospel? Christ died, buried, raised. What is the gospel? Christ died, buried, raised. Somebody comes up to you at work. Hey, I don't know what the gospel is. Christ died, buried, raised. That's kind of your talking points, isn't it? 
they're probably not going to start with what the gospel is. They're probably going to start with, what's the church all about? And you're going to say, what's the gospel? It's our mission. And you're going to say, well, what's the gospel? And you're going to say, Christ died, buried, raised. And if you need some help, you memorize where it comes from. It's right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. So the gospel is eternally relevant. It's relevant to us. The gospel is has a content that is fixed, and that's what this is right here. Christ died, buried, raised. But it's, it's richer than just memorizing it in its simplest form, as rich as that is. See, the, power, the sermon is titled Gospel Power, and the gospel is powerful because it comes straight from God. God is the gospel. It says in this passage that the gospel, as we're now calling it for short, is in accordance with the scriptures. Do you see that? It declares it twice, actually, in accordance with the writings of the scriptures. In accordance with the scriptures is found in verse number three, and then in accordance with the scriptures in verse number four. It's, it's right there in your English. It's in the Greek. In accordance with the scriptures. And this is reflecting in, with an economy of words that which we find when we study the Bible deeply and theologically, when we develop what we might call for short biblical theology, when we see the connective points inside of the Bible from reading it over and over again, and we start to grow in it, we see that the gospel's infinitely rich. For, for a few examples, if you were to look in the Old Testament at Hosea chapter 6, verse 2, you would find this verse. If you were just reading through Hosea for personal enrichment, one of the books of the Bibles, just kind of plodding along, doing what you feel like is faithful to do, you would find this verse. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise up that we may live before him. That's Hosea. That's a minor prophet. Listen to it again. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise up. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? That comes from a minor prophet. If you were to read in Jonah 1.17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now we know from Jonah that Jonah prayed from the belly of the fish. That was a long time before the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ walked the earth, Hosea and Jonah. Jonah prayed from the belly of the fish. Matthew's gospel, chapter 12, verse 40, parallels the time there with the three days Jesus spent in the grave before he was spit up onto the shore of resurrected life. The gospel writers understand that the whole story of the Bible is the gospel, that Jesus is the main thing through the whole thing. Luke makes this biblical theology, this content of this gospel, explicit in Luke 24, 25 through, through 27, when the appearance, when, when Jesus is resurrected, when he appears resurrected before the, his followers, and when he appears resurrected before his followers, a lot of folks think that what I'm about to read to you here, and if you were to read Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the so-called Great Commission, that that's what the appearance before the 500 is referencing. It's not some kind of a ghost-like figure. It's actually Jesus resurrected in his body. It's a, it's a cognizant thinking experience where I'm seeing, I'm thinking this is Jesus. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. He's coming again. So this is how it, it, was, it was told to them on that walk to Emmaus passage in Luke 24. O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Where, would, where do we find the prophets? In the Old Testament. This is Jesus after his resurrection. This is his appearance. He tells his apostles this. He says, Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning from Moses, that's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, that's the law, Deuteronomy, and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So Jesus illuminates the Old Testament by saying, that was talking about me. 
So we don't do malpractice to the Old Testament when we see Christ in it because Jesus gives us a license to do it in Luke 24, 27. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How much would you have liked to have been walking to Emmaus? What a great conversation. Wouldn't you like to be like a, a fly on the wall? Listening to him tell them how in all the scriptures this is about himself. Well, that's worth a trip to heaven, isn't it? I mean, I want to listen to this. I, want, I mean, I like preaching, and I, I feel called to preach, but hearing Jesus tell us, well, that's what's going on in Hosea and Jonah. This is what was going on there. Let me tell you about Genesis. And well, this, yeah, you had that right. This was wrong. It was a nice shot, Matt. But this is really what I meant about me here and there. I mean, just the point is this. I know one thing convictionally. He is in it from start to finish, or he's lying. And he's not a liar, is he? So that's the gospel's content, and it is absolutely essential. If you're interested in this sort of thing, the English Standard Version Study Bible begins with an overview of the Bible. It's on pages 23 to 26, if some of you own them. And if you will read that, you'll find it begins with these words. How does the Bible fit together? The events recorded in the Bible took place over a span of thousands of years and in several different cultural settings. What is their unifying thread? And it goes through the unifying thread. It says the Bible makes clear God has a unified plan for all of history. His ultimate purpose, a plan for the fullness of time, is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth, to the praise of his glory. God had this planned even from the beginning, remembering the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from the ancient times, ancient things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. There, if quoting Ephesians, as well as Isaiah. It says in that passage how the Bible kind of fits together, and it gives you a, a four-page synopsis of a biblical theology. I think you'll find it fruitful, pages 23 to 26 in the English Standard Version Study Bible, and frankly, it would be nice if you secured an English Standard Version Study Bible if you don't have one. It's a, it's a nice, helpful read. I have one digitally. I find it very helpful, and some of the things I'm sharing here obviously, quite obviously, come from there. So we've seen the gospel's relevance I've seen the gospel's content. Now let's see the gospel's messengers, verses 5 through 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8. He appeared to Cephas, that's the Aramaic name for Peter, the apostle Peter. So again, we see Peter and Paul tethered as apostles in the text. We saw it last week in 2 Peter. He appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. That's the 12 apostles, of course, with Matthias replacing Judas, but this is 12 apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 Maybe that's part of what I was reading to Luke and alluding to, certainly in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Appeared to the 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So he's going to say a few people have died. Most people are still alive. You can go talk to them. This kind of little sidebar here, if you've been following Corinthians with us at church, this is one of the reasons that Corinthians is dated as a pretty early letter because most of the witnesses are still alive. So 1 Corinthians is probably not one of the late letters of Paul. It's probably one of the early letters. This is... So that might kind of help you put a sense as to why we did it in the early A.D. 50s, only about maybe 15 to 20 years after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. So most of them are still alive, it says, verse 7. Then he appeared to James, his brother, who was a skeptic at first. Now he's leading the church at Jerusalem, we think. Then he appeared to all the apostles, which was more than just the 12, obviously. I mean, Paul would have made 13, but there's a sense in which there was an apostolic witness, and to be an apostle, you had to have witnessed the resurrection, so we're not eligible to the apostles. That is an office that has now ceased. There can be no doubt because the apostles had to witness the resurrection of Jesus. And so he appeared to all the apostles. Yes, Jesus made it a point to do that before he ascended into heaven. And last of all, 
And here Paul begins to get autobiographical. He says, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now, I just want to stop right there before we, we go any further. This is about the gospel's messengers. And the apostles were certainly the, the messengers of the gospel. There's no doubt about that. But, and we are too, by the way, as Christians. That's what we are. We're the gospel's messengers. We embrace the witness of the apostles. And where do you have it? In no uncertain terms, you have the witness of the apostles to the resurrection of the dead, beginning with Christ who is preeminent and all. Where do you have that witness? The apostles' witness is where? It's in your Bible, isn't it? And so just as the gospel is Christ dead, buried, and risen, so where do you have the apostles' witness of this gospel? You have it written in the Word. And so their witness lives on through us. But I want to say something specifically about this one untimely born, this one prematurely born or untimely born. There's a range of meaning here that gets into uh, gestation and life and, and beyond the scope of what I can get into in this sermon proper. It's a fascinating study, this word for untimely born. But last of all, as to one untimely born, Christ also appeared to Paul. This is amazing that Paul would be a messenger of Christ. It's just amazing. Like, don't lose sight of the miracle of salvation. Paul was a man that was bent on killing Christians. He organized lock, stock, and barrel, the rounding up and the destruction of the church. The first recorded martyr in the book of Acts comes in Acts chapter 7. It is the story of Stephen, and Acts 8 narrates that Paul was the one that held the cloaks of the killers, the stone throwers, to Stephen. What is the relevance of this? What, what, is, what is the point of this? It's, it's part of point 3 and it's part of point 4, but this part of point 3 is this. The gospel's messengers are unlikely candidates to be so. Now, there's some application here. If you've lost sight of how unlikely of a candidate that you are to be a herald of this gospel, regain sight of it today. You are an unlikely herald of this gospel. Your heart was dead and cold until you came to know Christ. And when you came to know Christ, he lit you up like the 4th of July sky. And he made you something inside that you weren't before. You are a herald of this gospel because of his wonderful grace. You are what you are because of his grace. You are no better than Paul in your rebellion against Christ's gospel. And the fact that you are a herald of that gospel today is a pointed miracle. Do you understand that? You are a miracle. Like, you don't need any further to believe in the supernatural than that. You are a miracle. No two ways about it. That's what you are. And let me tell you something about miracles, folks. We see them every time we see somebody legitimately profess Christ, walk through the waters of baptism, and begin to serve the Lord. That is a powerful miracle. It's the power of the gospel at work in us. Let me tell you something else about this point. You need to stop presuming that God doesn't want to save the hard cases in your orbit. Don't, some of you have stopped praying for the hard cases in your orbit. You're looking for greener pastures. 
Friends, Paul would have been an unbelievable convert. I just wonder what Muslim in your orbit, I wonder what atheist in your orbit, I wonder what obstinate, nominal, wayward person that lives in America in your orbit, I wonder what de-churched person in your orbit, I wonder just one more gospel sharing, I wonder what God wants to do. I just wonder, would you keep praying for him? Would you have the courage of your convictions to be a messenger of this gospel? Because the chief interpreter of New Testament Christianity is the Apostle Paul, and before he was an apostle, he was a killer of Christians. I think that's justification enough for you to recover the miraculous nature of your salvation and to recover your heart as a herald for the gospel and your passion to share the gospel with the lost. Can you do that? Let me tell you, there's a difference between outreach and gospel proclamation or evangelism. But outreach often precedes it. Would you be willing to take one of these little cards? I got them somewhere around here. Take one of these little cards that we've got out at the table and maybe invite somebody to the church. I think we might pass them out to you as you walk out today. Invite somebody to come to church next week. That's outreach. Would you begin an earnest prayer for an unlikely convert? Uh, you know, just by way of giving a vote of confidence to our mission, you could put one of these in your yard. That's saying to people that drive by that you took the physical, I mean, it's more than a virtual presence, it's a physical presence. I plop this thing out in my yard, I got to mow around it every week. I actually believe in this mission, you know. Uh, what I'm trying to say to you is, tis the season for you. Oh, there's my little card. It looks like that. It's your handout. It's a little B-square thing you can hand out to people. What I'm saying is, tis the season to not just recover the relevance and the, the content of the gospel, but to be a messenger of the gospel. Tis the season for you to do that, and I want to remind you to do that as a, as a messenger of the gospel. I, I want to just label Easter to Memorial Day as our church's outreach season. Just use the yard sign the whole time. Use the little cards the whole time. Who will you outreach out to in this season? Um, that's part of being the Lord's people, is to share it. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how will they call on him if they haven't if they have not believed, and how will they believe in him whom they have not heard, and how will they hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not obeyed the gospel, all of them. For the Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing to the word of Christ. So what are you to do? You have to tell if they're to hear. We are messengers, and we need to recover that messenger status, that status as a herald in this season. If this is your conviction, the power of the gospel follows the gospel being shared. The Lord is with us in bringing peace to us as we are obedient to that which scares us, and that is engaging other people with the gospel. Finally, the gospel's theme, verses 9 through 11. Let's read it afresh. It says this, For I am the least of the apostles. This is the apostle Paul saying, I'm the least of them unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Isn't that a beautiful promise for you? Hey, who, who among us can't say that? As a believer, who among us can't say, by the grace of God, I am what I am, right? Well, this isn't about my good works. It's about his good works. It's not, it's not about me being the best man I can be. It's about him being the man. It's Christ. It's him crucified, dead and buried, rose again. That's the message. 
That's the, that's the power of the gospel. I love that verse. By the grace of God, Matt is what he is. By the grace of God, you are what you are. Can you put your name in there? By the grace of God, you insert your name. What I am. I mean, that is powerful. If it's yours, it's powerful. If you're an unbeliever on the outside looking in, I want you to know this gospel I'm preaching to you about Jesus, you can receive it. There's nothing keeping you from receiving it. You can have it. It's yours for the taking. And you live in light of this gospel all the days of your life, and you're dwelling in the house of the Lord forever. That's my message to you. That's my invitation to you. And you know whether or not you've received it in a way that I don't. I'd be happy, 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 happy. Matter of fact, I'd be happy with the angels who rejoice if you would receive this gospel. We would rejoice together. Heaven and earth would unite as one kingdom to celebrate your salvation. Receive this gospel today, O unbeliever. Receive this gospel today. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. It was not empty. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. I think that just means his missionary expanse was a further geographic distance. He, he really did work hard. He went all over the place before he was killed, we think. He says, but it wasn't I. It was the grace of God that is with me. Is with me. So this, this is the theme, grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. It's the grace of God that is with me. This is the theme. The gospel's theme is grace. What is the gospel theme? It's grace. We've learned what the content of the gospel is today. It's continued relevance. Now we learn the theme of the gospel. It's grace, that we must be sharers of it. It's grace upon grace. It's not your works. It's grace. It's not by works so that none of us can boast. Only if we boast in Christ. We are saved through the wonderful, wonderful grace of God in Christ. Paul considered his conversion from persecutor to apostle to be free and holy, an undeserved gift of God, and we should too. God's grace does not lead us to passivity. It leads us to hard work for the gospel. We share it. The theme of grace propels us to share the gospel. That's what it does. That's what it does. Today, as we've examined the gospel's relevance and the gospel's content and how we are to be the messenger of the gospel and its theme. I want you to embrace this, this challenge in your life to share the gospel, to do outreach and to provide opportunities to do evangelism, to share the gospel with people that they might be saved. Do it with your actions and your attitudes all the way to the end of your life under firm conviction, and you'll experience grace upon grace. A rightly decided conviction covers over a multitude of anxieties. Let's bow our heads and pray. And as we pray, I want to invite our deacons down front. Dear Heavenly Father, please help us as we meditate on these words. Help us as we meditate on you, the word. As we have believed and go on in our belief, the preaching of the gospel that we've heard, help us to share the gospel that we believe. We need your help for it, Lord, because at best we are men. But by you... We are powerful, equipped, compelled. And you choose to take the little things of our lives to multiply it over like loaves and fishes and do the miraculous. Help us now as we come to your table. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord's people are one at his table.